I'm Linus. Welcome to Kids Talk Church History, a one-of-a-kind podcast where kids investigate the history of the church. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As he kept his promise, how has Jesus built and preserved his church against all odds? Come with us on a trip through history to find the answer, here on Kids Talk Church History. One day, in a region north of Lyon, France, a Dominican friar, Etienne de Bourbon, heard that many women were praying to St. Guinefert Martyr. But who was St. Guinefert? The friar had never heard of him. When he asked the woman, he found out that Guinefert was a greyhound dog. Stay tuned for the rest of this and other surprising stories from the Middle Ages. My name is Lucy, I'm 17, and I live in San Diego, California. I'm Grace, and I li- I'm 11, and I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I'm Sophia, I'm 14, and I live in Orlando, Florida. So these women were praying to a dog? Why? Well, according to the friar, it all started when Gwenefert's owners found their baby crib empty with some bloodstains outside. Only their dog was home, so they figured that the dog ate the baby. Immediately, they killed it. But then they heard a cry and found the baby safe under the crib, together with the body of a snake that Gwyneford had killed. Poor Gwyneford. Then when their neighbors heard what happened, they began to pray to the dog, asking it to do miracles for their children. This story is a pretty extreme example of the type of superstition that went on in some places. I've read that people also attributed a lot of power to some objects that were considered holy. Yes, those kind of objects are called relics. They're considered holy because of their supposed connection with Jesus or some saints. Some are objects that belong to a saint, and some are parts of a saint's body. In the 16th century, a reformer named John Calvin wrote a humorous paper to show how impossible it was for all those relics to be authentic. For example, he said that if all the pieces of Christ's cross kept in the churches were real, the cross would have been as big as a ship. I once read in a book that there were so many relics that were supposed to be parts of the body of John the Baptist that if they were real, he would have had something like 10 heads and 7 arms. What's the strangest relic we know of? Well, the strangest one that I've heard of is listed by John Calvin, and it's a small container full of what is supposedly Mary's breast milk. Calvin wondered who went to get that milk and how did they get it? I just have one question about that. Why? Why is that? Why? I I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Um, I have read that some took advantage of the people's love for relics and pretended that some objects belonged to the saints just to make money. Yeah, and that was one of the major problems, the corruption that existed in the church. There are so many stories about corrupt priests, bishops, and even popes. In fact, since we started with quite a shocking story, I can tell you a story about a pope who got a pretty bad reputation. I love stories. Well, this particular one isn't a very happy story. It's about a 9th century pope named uh, Formosus, which means handsome. Most popes changed their name when they became popes, but Formosus liked his name. Anyhow, he might have been handsome, but he made a lot of political enemies. So, after he died and was buried, the next pope had his body dug up, dressed it in papal clothes, and held a trial against him. Yikes, I would have hated to be there. Obviously, Formosus couldn't say anything in his defense. 
Right. So the new pope found him guilty, stripped him of any papal honor, burned his body and threw the ashes in the river. How could the people continue to respect the popes when they had people like this? Well, they knew what was going on. A medieval author, uh, Boccaccio, wrote a story of a Jew who became a Christian after visiting Rome. When a friend seemed surprised, the Jew said that, yes, the priests and bishops were such a bad example that they seemed intent on destroying Christianity. But since Christianity kept on going, the Jew concluded that the Holy Spirit must be its foundation and support. That's a pretty good attitude. And it's actually true. It's God that keeps the church going. And I think around that time, people realized that the church needed a reformation. And some tried to do something about it, but not as drastically in the 16th century. We have here today the perfect expert to explain all this, Dr. Leonardo de Chirico, pastor of the church Breccia di Roma in Rome, Italy, and lecturer in historical theology at the Institute uh, IFED in Padova, Italy. Dr. De Chirico, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I hope I pronounced all those Italian names right. If I didn't, you can let me know. You're the Italian expert on this. You pronounced them perfectly. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so we've had a few other episodes on the podcast about the Middle Ages where uh, we discovered wonderful people who love the Lord and the gospel. In church history, the Middle Ages were a time of missions and very important studies. So we don't want to say the Middle Ages were all bad and the Reformation was when good finally started happening. But there were a lot of problems, as we've seen. Um, can you think of any other issues, major issues during that time besides people's superstitions and corruption of the church? Yes, I think that the the main problem in the Middle Ages was the uh, biblical Ill illiteracy. The fact that the Bible was not read in homes, in families, and even in churches. Part of it was caused by the lack of knowledge of the Latin language in uh, within the you know in the people's in people's lives. And so the Bible was not read let alone understood. And so that it left a vacuum and that vacuum was filled with uh, practices, devotions, beliefs that were, uh, contrary to the Bible. Some of them were awkward, strange, bizarre, and uh, they all derived from biblical ignorance. So along with uh, those issues and the issues we talked about, a lot of people tried to find solutions to um, the various problems that the church had at the time. Uh, how do you think these people prepared the way for the Reformation? Yeah, some people felt that the the main problems were moral in character and they try to provide for better uh, lifestyles or better ethical standards but ultimately the movements that really prepared the way for the reform for, for the reformation were movements who, which were driven by uh, the return to the bible going back to scripture these were uh, movements that led paved the way for what then the Reformation um, uh, relaunched, the recovery of the Word of God. So I'm thinking of the Waldensians in the 13th century. I'm thinking of other movements which tried to uh, call the church back to the Bible, saying, hey, we have a problem here. We have forgotten the scripture. 
And if we for, if we have forgotten the scriptures, everything else is can be corrected uh, by you know different fantasies and uh, ideas. So these were the movements that really prepared the way for for the Reformation. So I guess going back to some of the things that pointed to the need for a reformation. Um, trusting in a dog to save your children seemed like a very strange idea, but it really happened. Why would people consider praying to a dead dog instead of directly to Jesus? Well, first of all, because of biblical, biblical ignorance. They, they have never read the Bible for themselves. And so their ideas of the afterlife, the heavens, uh, spirituality were all filled with uh, strange uh, beliefs. And then uh, in the Middle Ages, there was a sense in which God was thought of as being very removed, uh, inaccessible, and Christ was too high, too, too different from us. And so the need for uh, lower mediators, uh, people, or even animals who were thought of as being closer to us, Christ being too high, God being too divine. And so and us meeting, needing mediators who looked like us. So in, in so doing, they completely misunderstood the fact that in Christ, in Jesus Christ, God had become a man. And so very close to us, to the point of becoming one of us, in order for, for us to have a mediator, someone who could fully understand us and someone uh, for whom he had died and risen from the dead. So there was a mixture of motivations, lack of biblical literacy and uh, too high view of God to the point of not being accessible in Christ Jesus and therefore looking for other ways. Wow. So earlier you mentioned some strange medieval relics. What's the strangest relic you know of? <laughs> I uh, once visited the Italian region of Umbria. Umbria is a very pretty uh, region where St. Francis of Assisi and Santa Chiara, they both live there. But apparently, if you collect all the robes that are, are uh, pretended to have um, to have belonged to St. Francis, he would have had a wardrobe uh, worth of a Hollywood star. Instead of being a very poor and very simple man, uh, the way he was, if we collect all the robes that are considered as having belonged to him, uh, he would have had instead a, an actor. Uh, and so that's quite funny. Um, to, to look at. Do some people still believe that these relics are real? Yeah, they do. They do. Uh, some of them are counterfeit, as Calvin rightly pointed out in his um, uh, treatise on relics. Others, uh, you know, they have various degrees of proximity to uh, being uh, true uh, relics. Uh, for example, in a couple of weeks, in, in San Giovanni Rotondo, in the Puglia region of, of Italy, southern, southeastern part of the country, a piece of uh, St. Pio's heart will be displayed, a piece of his heart. 
And that is a relic that will be on display for a full month. And those who visit this relic will receive the pardon for their sins, the forgiveness for their sins. So uh, it is quite awkward to think about this practice. Uh, and some of the relics are maybe real, others are counterfeit, but the point is that they all point to a very strange, if not wrong, direction. We're not meant to access the grace of God through a relic, an object, but through by faith alone in Christ alone. Um, so it seems that many Roman Catholic beliefs started in the Middle Ages, like the idea of purgatory. How could you explain purgatory to our listeners, and when did it become a Roman Catholic teaching? Well, uh, once you lose sight of the great doctrine of justification by faith, the truth that we are justified not because of what we do, but because what Christ has done for us, and we receive his righteousness, which is imputed on us, accredited on us, rather than us having to deserve it. Once you lose sight of this, then because you, you feel that you are not worthy, then the, the place for purgatory was in a way formed. None of us is worthy to go to heaven. That was the idea because we're all sinners. Uh, and therefore, before entering heaven, the idea arose that we needed a time of purification, a time when where our sins uh, could be purged and we could then become worthy to enter heaven. So it was a misunderstanding of the doctrine of justification and the replacement with a false view of how we are saved, implying that we have to do something in order to deserve and to become better people before entering heaven. Speaking of um, more Roman Catholic teachings, I've read that the Roman Catholic Church believes its popes to be infallible, meaning that they're unable to say anything wrong, so to speak, while they're officially speaking in their position as popes. But how do they justify then all the anti-popes of the past or popes that later were condemned? Yeah, as you rightly said, they don't believe that every single word that popes say uh, is infallible only when on certain specific occasions and they selectively selective, selectively uh, point out that the uh, occasions where when popes are infallible are very few, only when they speak through the authority of a council or when they use specific words before speaking what they want to say. So I guess they, they, they would say that uh, most of what Pope's uh, said is not infallible, although it needs to be received with uh, attention, but only the words that are preceded by um, technical expressions like what I'm going, what I'm about to say is going to be infallible. Only when Pope's say this, then what they say is considered to be infallible. So I think they would manage the contradiction in this way. Uh, of course, we, that is not enough for us because uh, once you uh, believe that popes have a magisterial office, that is a teaching 
authoritative office, and yet the record of history is full of um, popes who have been totally unreliable, uh, totally uh, inconsistent. Uh, that is still a, a, a strong argument not to put our trust in popes as uh, authoritative teachers of God's word. I read, have read once that there were three men claiming to be popes at the same time. When and why did that happen? Yes, that's right. It was uh, at the turn of the 14th century when uh, there was a, a schism going on in the West between the Pope who would reign was reigning here from Rome and another Pope who was reigning in Avignon, southern France. And there was a competition between these two popes, uh, each one of them claiming to be the only pope, and uh, and so condemning the other as a as a heretic. Now, in order to solve the problem, at one point in the at the Council of Pisa, Pisa is a city in Tuscany, Italy. A third pope was elected, and it was meant to to be the Pope who could uh, then become the only recognized, recognized Pope. But the two Popes, the Pope in Rome and the Pope in Avignon, did not recognize this new Pope. So all of a sudden, the Church, instead of having one, it had not only two, we did have three Popes. The issue was then resolved at the Council of Constance in 1413, 14. 18, when a, a new pope was elected and the other three were uh, dismissed. Um, you live in Italy, a Roman Catholic country. Do you think some of the problems of the medieval church are still continuing today? Oh, yes, very much so. As I, as I referred to earlier on, uh, the devotional relics, the, the doctrine and the practice of indulgences, prayer to the dead, prayer to the saints, devotions which are not centered on Christ and his word, but are instead uh, centered on uh, practices that are far beyond and away from scripture. They're all part of our daily experience here in, in majority Roman Catholic countries. And so the Middle Ages are still very alive in this part of the world where Catholic doctrine and practice is very much shaped around uh, non-biblical practices that many of them have been originated in the Middle Ages. So the Middle Ages are still with us and uh, is still impacting and influencing uh, the majority of uh, people who, are, who think they are religious, but actually they are rehearsing practices and uh, devotions that cannot be found in scripture. Um, so here in the States, many Roman Catholics say that their church is going back to the teachings of Christ in the early church, which are contrary to the teachings of the Reformation. How would you reply to this? Well, there is a sense in which they claim that uh, <clears throat> the, the church developed over time its own beliefs and practices. And so in a kind of uninterrupted chain of development, everything evolved and morphed 
uh, across the centuries. The point is that uh, uh, scripture was in this process was no longer the external ultimate authority, uh, and uh, it, it, the Reformation was needed because the church needed to go back to the recognition that the church needs to have the authority of God over the church and not to become its own self-referential, self-imposed authority. So there is a sense in which the Catholic Church developed over time, but away from the ultimate authority of Scripture. And so there was a need for the Reformation to call the church back to the Scripture and back to the recognition of the authority of God's Word over the mistakes of the church. Thank you. That's a great response. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your church in Italy? Were you born into a Roman Catholic family? I was. I was, and I went through uh, the catechism. I went through what is a, a boy is expected to do, being raised in a Catholic uh, family and context, until uh, we were visited by a missionary couple from Switzerland, and they came and visited us, and they uh, opened the scriptures around the dining table, and my father, and later on my mother, they became Christians. I was a boy uh, looking at what was happening, observing what was happening, and it took a few years to process what I was uh, witnessing too. At, uh, when I was a teenager, then I also became uh, convicted of my sin and uh, also convicted of the need of a savior in Christ Jesus. And so I professed uh, the Christian faith and uh, I, I'm, I've been walking in this faith uh, since. Thank you for sharing that. Um... We have a question from one of our hosts, Emma, who is not here today. She was wondering if you have any suggestions for books she could read about the Middle Ages. Oh, uh, there are, you know, fictions that are uh, shaped around uh, the imagination coming from the Middle Ages. I'm talking about uh, C.S. Lewis or Tolkien. Uh, these uh, narratives are... are uh, mainly, you know, shaped around uh, medieval imagination. And uh, uh, another, you know, booklet, more spiritual guide is The Imitation of Christ, uh, Thomas Akempis. That's a, a little book. It's a devotional book uh, expressing the desire of the medieval believer to become like Christ, to be transformed in the likeness of Christ. And so these are two ways to encounter the Middle Ages through novels, uh, contemporary novels, but shaped around medieval imagination and through a devotional book, little book that helps us to understand what was at stake with the medieval man wanting to become more like Jesus. Thank you. That'll be very helpful. Okay. Just two last questions that we ask all of our guests. How did you become interested in church history? And if you could meet anyone from the Middle Ages, who would it be? Oh, I was born in Mantova, a very interesting little town 
but very historic, going back to the Etruscan times before uh, the Romans, and then uh, can uh, the, the history of the city being traceable through Roman history, Longobards, uh, medieval uh, courts, and then uh, the Renaissance and uh, the modern period. So as a young child, uh, we were taken as, as pupils to visit the different historical sites of the city. And uh, they, these visits had a strong impression on me. Uh, I always had liked uh, history. And uh, when I uh, tried to figure out what, what, uh, what God was calling me to do and to be in my life, uh, I was happy to, to find out that history and church history was part of my calling. So it, it started at a very earlier, early age in, in my life and it developed over time and it still uh, enthuses me with, uh, with joy. When I, when I read history, when I study history, when I research history, I'm always intrigued and uh, excited. And as far as the, if I could uh, meet someone from the Middle Ages, I, last year in the summer, I visited a very beautiful little village not far from Rome, uh, Civita di Bagnoregio. Uh, it is where Bonaventure of Bagnoregio was born. Bonaventure was a Franciscan uh, monk in the 13th century. In many ways, he had evangelical views about the Bible, the primacy of God's word, and the sufficiency of Christ for our salvation. He had also some weird and, and different ideas on other aspects, but on some basic gospel truths, he was very sound. And um, if I had a chance, I would have liked to meet him and to have a chat with him, maybe around a coffee to enjoy together. All right. Well, Dr. DeKiriko, uh, we're so thankful that you decided to join us today and to spend this time with us and to share uh, your knowledge of Italian history with us. Uh, we hope we can see you again on the podcast as a guest soon. But uh, to close us off, I was thinking, uh, could you teach us how to say thank you very much in Italian? Yes, of course. Grazie mille. Uh, literally, it means thank you a thousand Mm -hmm. so thank you a thousand times grazie mille well grazie mille uh dr de Chirico, for coming for being on our podcast today right. thank uh, you to all and congratulations for your podcast thank you thank you so as usual our listeners have an opportunity to win a copy of simonetta carr's book church history which includes information on the church in the middle ages to enter the drawing submit your questions or comments to questions at kidstalkchurchhistory.org you can also find the link on our website kidstalkchurchhistory.org uh, while you're there you'll also find past episodes special news recommended readings and more and if you would consider making a donation to support the work of the alliance and podcasts like this one we'd really appreciate it and we also want to announce a very special offer. Just send us an email with your name and your favorite episode so far, and you'll be entered in a drawing for the opportunity to be with us on Zoom in a special upcoming episode. We're looking forward to having you with us, so write soon. In partnership with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals and on behalf of my co-hosts, Grace and Sophia, my name's Lucy. Thank you for listening to Kids Talk Church History. <laughs>